Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. So welcome again. My name is Drew. I'm one of the other pastors here. And um, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, we've opened the Sermon on the Mount, looking at Jesus' most well-known sermon that he gave to many. And we're going to be looking at that specifically in Matthew 5 to 7. And today I want us to start out by thinking about standards as we prepare to look at verses 17 through 20. Standards. We all have standards. They're all around us. We have standards that we live by. Think about some of these standards like Food quality, that's an important one. It's a good thing that we have that standard. Air quality, we have certain standards that we expect. We have certain standards that we set for that. Um, Things like standards at our work, how we work with one another, how we participate with one another, standards for pay. We have standards for our friendships and our relationships, certain expectations that we have as we participate in community and in life with one another. We have standards in our families. Think about your family. You have standards that you've set, whether you call them that or not. There are standards, these expectations. We have our own personal standards that we set for ourselves, maybe ethical standards that we live by, moral standards. Think about all of these standards that are all around us. But we live in a culture, and as we look at this sermon, what we've what we've done is we've, we've set it up in saying what Jesus is doing is he's coming and he's speaking as he's come to do ministry, but he's doing it in a very countercultural way. He's flipping culture. He's changing what people have understood, or he's redefining it in a way that's ushering in this new kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. But our culture, what it would do even today is it would suggest in a lot of ways that having standards or certain standards are actually not seen as something that's strong, but is sort of a weakness, maybe an inflexibility. You shouldn't have too many standards. You should kind of live in this be-true-to-yourself reality. That, you know, you establish whatever you live by. You do you and, and, and live that way. And so, you know, it really doesn't matter. Do whatever you need to do in order to survive. Do whatever you need to do in order to thrive. Do whatever you need to do in order to get where you want to get. And standards can be seen as something that are very negative, that hold us back from acquiring those things. But the reality is, if we live by sort of that be-true-to-yourself reality, that it can lead us in a lot of different directions, but all of these different directions, they end up in one place, and really that's confusion and delusion. Because in doing that, in operating by our own self-set standards or cultural standards, in and of itself, What we're doing is we are taking this route and forfeiting, living by the only standard, the true standard that really matters, and that's God's standard. And yes, I would say God has a standard for your life. Now, you in in your own spirit might now be pushing back a little bit against that and saying, hey, what about grace? Come on, come on, come on. We talk about grace. Yes. Believe it or not, we believe in God's standards for our life, and we believe in grace. And God has absolutely set a standard in which he wants us to live, and that's what he's going to highlight throughout the rest of this Sermon on the Mount. But before he does that, he gives us, in the last two sermons, in the last two weeks that we looked at, first he gives us, um, he addresses our identity. That's what we looked at in week one with the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who, blessed are you, blessed are you. He talks about our identity in relationship with him and in relationship with others through the Beatitudes. This is who we now are in Christ. And then he gives us our purpose, as Alex talked about last week. Really our purpose in the you are's. He says, here's who you are. 
And then you are the salt and light. And this is your purpose. This is the purpose that God has given us as his people and as his church. That we have usefulness in this world. That we're not just walking around in this world counting down the days until it ends. But we actually have usefulness and we have a purpose that God has given us. And we have usefulness for those around us when we're living in the way that he has told us to live, when we're living as the salt and light, when we're glorifying Him, when we're bringing glory to Him, when our lives point to Him, that there's usefulness in living out our identity in the way that God attend, intends. And now He transitions to these commands, and really it encompasses two main areas, all right? It encompasses our relationship with God, and again, it encompasses our relationship with others. And this really points us back to the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, or the law. These are the first five books that we see if you look at the Old Testament and, these, um, and, and to the prophets. Um, and these prophets, what their role was in the Old Testament, you would hear about prophets, is what they would do is they would call people back to God. They would remind people of God's law. As people would go astray, as people would start to worship false gods, they would call them back. They would remind them of who God has made them to be, their identity in Him as their children. As, their peop- as his people, and what he wants us to live out of. And there are several commands that Jesus is going to affirm, as we'll look at in the next several weeks. Two of them are found in the Ten Commandments. And what you might expect is that Jesus would come along, as some of these people would have expected, and soften these laws or do away with these laws, but actually he does something quite different. He doesn't soften these laws at all. In fact, what he does is he takes them to a completely other level that probably no one expected. And what we're going to look at this morning is really an introduction to these commands that are going to follow. It's kind of a setup to the um, next several weeks as we look at the Sermon of the Mount. And this first verse really sets everything up for us. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Matthew 5. We'll start in verse 17. Um, or if you have a phone, you can turn there as well. We're not doing a screen today. And there is also a uh, red Bible right in front of you. But we'll start in, we'll start in verse 17. So he's given us our identity He's given us our purpose to be salt and light. And now Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in this section, do not think, are very powerful words. This isn't light language. Do not think means don't even let this thought pass through your head. That's how worthless this is. Don't let the thought pass through your head that I've come to destroy the law or to abolish the law or to do away with the prophets. That's not, that's not what I've come to do at all. In fact, what I've come to do is to fulfill those. And really, what's this law that we're talking about? Well, the Old Testament, it's comprised, we would find 613 laws. 613 laws that deal with different things. There were ceremonial laws. There were civil laws. There were moral laws. And they deal with all of these different things that God has given his people to live by in the Old Testament. As they would seek to do this, as they would seek to honor God. So when Jesus says that these laws aren't going to be abolished, here's what would happen. You would either have a great fear as you listen to this. Oh my goodness, I thought that's the hope that he was bringing. He was going to take these laws down because they're impossible to follow perfectly, which they were. Or you would have great hope. And it would really all depend on what the word fulfilled means. And so we're going to get back to that in just a minute. But before we go any further in the text, it would be good to answer a big question here. And this question would be, really, what are these laws about? 
What's the law really about? Because we kind of hear the word law, maybe in church sometimes, we hear the law and the gospel. And so what's the intent of the law? What, what is it really about? And so we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, but before that, in chapter 4, here's what we see. We see that Jesus is baptized, we see that the Spirit comes down upon him, and then we see that the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, and Jesus, after that time, he's tempted. He's tempted by the tempter, he's tempted by Satan. And Satan tempts him in a few different things. And first what happens is when he encounters this tempter, when he encounters Satan, Satan challenges his identity, which he often does. He does the same with us. He challenges who we are. And we've seen in the Beatitudes that our identity, that we're rooted in God's grace as his children. But here's what Satan says to Jesus. He says that if you are the son of God, and Jesus was hungry at the time, it makes sense, 40 days of fasting, you'd be hungry. I'm hungry after four hours of fasting. I'm hungry right now just thinking about this. <laughs> what Jesus does is, uh, what Satan does is he says this. He says, if you are the son of God, and if you're this hungry, then turn these stones into bread. Turn these stones into bread. Satisfy your material need is essentially what Satan's saying. And what Jesus does is he responds from Scripture. He responds from Deuteronomy, from one of the books of the law. And here's what he says. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so now Satan um, gets up to speed and he says, Okay, you're going to respond with Scripture. I'll do the same. And he has a second encounter. And instead of just a material temptation, now it's a physical temptation. It's a temptation really over safety. Jesus is standing in front of a cliff, and Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down to the streets below? For God says, and he uses the scripture, God promises to protect you. And Jesus responds from the law again, once again in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, and here's what he says. He says, on the other hand, you shall not put God to the test. Jesus knows better. He knows the law, and he knows that God tests. We don't test him. So what's really the point of this? Well, here's the deal. The point that Jesus is making here is that we are more than just the material. We are more than just skin and bones. We're not simply just physical. We have spiritual hungers and thirsts. We have spiritual needs. We have a mind. We have a heart. We have a will. We have the desire to know, be known, and to know others, to experience love, to know righteousness, to know goodness, to know meaning and significance. And I don't think anyone would deny this about us, about how we've been created as humans. This is what C.S. Lewis refers to as being a strange hybrid. Here's what Jesus is getting at, is that we are born both physical, yes, but also spiritual. And without this understanding of spiritual, the reality is we only know half of ourselves, which is a scary thing to think about. And what happens is if we don't look at the spiritual being, our spiritual being, is we allow culture to essentially dictate the other half of who we are. And the problem is that with these cultural constraints or structures, they're constantly changing all of the time. And so we end up living life not on a firm foundation that's found in our faith, but instead we end up living life on a very rocky, transient, constantly changing cultural foundation, which isn't a foundation at all, And it usually leads us to an identity crisis because God has created us with a clear identity and he's given us a solid foundation that should be rooted in him. This is very important that we understand this even as we look at the law. 
that it's not just written to us as the physical, but that we're also spiritual beings that God has created. And so what the law is doing, how we should see it, is it's affirming God's way for us. It's affirming God's way for us as his created, that we aren't just physical, but we're spiritual, and he's given us a new identity, and he's given us a new purpose. And if we don't look at the law through this lens, we completely misunderstand it, as we'll see that many religious leaders did. We understand it's, we'll misunderstand its intent, and, what, and that's actually what Jesus calls out here for a minute. Now, many, think about this. This is a Sermon on the Mount. Think about the listeners here. They would be on this mount. And many, if not most, that were sitting here listening to this sermon would have probably been expecting Jesus now to take the opportunity to dismantle the law of their fathers and forefathers. This would have been what many would have expected to be the good news as he brings in and ushers this new kingdom. Now the Messiah is with us in the flesh, so there's no longer a need for the law. But instead, here's what he does. As you just saw in that first verse, he reaffirms the importance of the standard set by God. Why does he do that? And if you're sitting there on that hill listening thousands of years ago, you would probably be filled with maybe some great fear. Just as you were listening, as you didn't have everything else, everything else hasn't played out before your eyes yet. You're just listening to this sermon for the very first time. You'd probably have some fear, and you'd probably start even asking this incredibly important question. As Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law but I've come to fulfill it, you'd probably ask this question, am I living up to his standard? Is my life measuring up or living up to God's standard? If he's not come to abolish the law and the law is still in place, man, I sure hope my life is living up to his standard. Now, before we go too far with that, let's continue in this passage. Here's what Jesus says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, it's hard to get around that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, until heaven and earth pass away, some of the law will remain. He says, not a dot, not an iota. This is big. He's pointing back to the Jewish leaders, to some of the rabbis who were very strict, who were very stringent about the law, even to the period, even to the dot. He's saying none of it's going to be abolished. It's all going to be upheld. And so now you might be even more fearful You're thinking these thoughts, which we probably thought every day of of our life too. Oh my goodness, what can I do? There's no way I can live up to this. There's no way I can live up to this standard. There's no way that I can satisfy every dot. There's no way that, man, I have trouble satisfying. uh, I have trouble when I wake up in the morning. Not Not falling into sin, not thinking certain things, not doing certain things. What's the deal here? What's God getting at? Well, he's saying that the law is really, it's, it's God's way, it's God's rule, it's God's, it's God's word. And what he's saying by not an iota, not a dot, is he is pointing to the eternality of the law. He makes the same point that others would make from this tradition of the rabbis, that even the smallest details of God's law are essential. How would I boil this down? I would say God's law is not a joke. God's word isn't a joke. It's not something to be just glanced over and say, all right, yeah, I see that. And then just go about our day. It's serious. It's real. I know we don't want to think that way a lot of times. We'd rather not get that deep because that can get kind of scary. But the reality is, here's what Jesus is saying. He wants everybody to understand, no, no, no. God's law has a clear purpose. It's not a joke. It's been given for a reason. And I'm not coming to tear it apart. 
And if he's not coming to tear it apart, then that must mean that there's some goodness that's found in it. In verse 19, he continues and he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is speaking to the circumstances of those who are listening. There would have been Pharisees there, these religious leaders who kept the law as best they could to the dot, to the iota. They kept every single rule. But the reality is, is that these Pharisees, they're teaching and demonstrating something different than what Jesus really desires, than what God really desires of his disciples, of his followers. You see, they would affirm what the law is, they would affirm the way of the law, they would affirm the rule of the law, but it's how they're responding to it that was off base. And it's the same thing that we can fall into. See, the Pharisees would also rank these laws why Jesus says the least and the greatest, they would rank these laws and level of importance, what's most important, what's not that important, but it's still a part of the law. And it's easy for us to do the same. I mean, think about, every, think about our lives. It's very easy to pick and choose. I know I wrestle with this. There are certain things in the Bible, there are certain things God has said which I really like. There are certain things that I struggle with. The things that I tend to struggle with are the ones that I tend to dismiss or I tend to just not look at. Because if I look at those, what it means is that I also have to look at my own heart. (laughs) If I look at those, it means I have to admit that I'm flawed. If I look at the laws that I struggle with or the commands that God has given me to, for instance, love my enemies, and I'm not doing that, it's a little bit harder to look at it because then I have to admit that I'm in need. And that can be challenging because it questions our pride. It puts our pride in, uh, in its place. It's hard to be humble. And so it's easy for us to go through and to pick and choose. And this has happened. This has happened over the past several thousand years. People pick and choose. And that's how we get some dangerous false religions. It's how we get some cults because people will go through and they'll pick and choose certain things that they like and they'll tear out certain things that they don't. And they construct their own religion, but that's not God's truth. That's not, that's not the Bible. That's not the gospel. So what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, these commands, they're not a joke. And we're upholding these. And make sure that you don't teach someone to do the same, to relax these, meaning we kind of pick and choose. And this really puts things in an interesting perspective. And, and right now, if you just come to the end of verse 19 and we leave it there, it's like, man, where do we go from here? Because there's a lot of laws. There are a lot of laws. There are a lot of laws that we don't adhere to today. You might even ask that. Why don't we adhere to all the Old Testament laws? Well, we have really the Ten Commandments that we hold. A lot of the Old Testament laws, they were specific to the people of Israel. They were specific to that time, to civil laws, to ceremonial laws. But what do we do with this? Jesus wraps up this passage by saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, and so it's like, oh my goodness, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this sounds on the page really bad news, especially to those who would have been listening who weren't scribes and Pharisees, because they would have been looking at the scribes and Pharisees, and they would have said, they are the epitome of the law keepers. They're the epitome. And so, Jesus, you're telling us that our righteousness needs to exceed their righteousness? There's no way. There's no way. I've already failed in so many ways 
now you're asking me or you're telling me that there's no way that I can be in relationship with you or enter into your kingdom unless my righteousness exceeds their righteousness and their righteousness from my understanding because they keep all of these laws down to the rule, their righteousness is pretty high, right? Well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe that's not the case here. And so the question is, what is righteousness? If it's not really what the scribes and Pharisees were living out, what is it? Here's what we see, and here's really the crux. Here's the handle of this whole passage. Here's the way that we understand it correctly. Righteousness is a life rooted in faith, living out by faith in obedience God's way, His word, His rule. Living out by faith in obedience. It doesn't go the other way. It's not obedience and then faith. It's faith first and then obedience. It's an open heart first which produces obedience. It's realizing how broken that we are, how broke we are righteously, as we said in the first week during the Beatitudes. It's coming humbly before God and accepting His grace into our life, placing our faith that what Jesus has done is good enough on our behalf. And then because of that great gift of grace and a transformed heart, we now are moved to be obedient to the Lord of our life, to hand over that lordship, that it's no longer myself who's Lord of my life. It's no longer someone else. It's no longer culture who gets that place of Lord of my life, but it's now Jesus. And if we truly love Jesus and our hearts are turned to Jesus, then it makes sense that out of that love then comes an obedience. An obedience. And that's what really Jesus is getting here with the righteousness, that it's not legalistic and it's not moralistic. Now, we can easily see it that way, and sometimes we can make it that way, where we just keep the letter of the law, but we fail to press into the spirit of the law. Parents, you would get this if you probably ask your kids to do certain things, right? Go clean your room, go do this, go do that. And they're like, I did it. And you would say, yeah, but you didn't really get what I meant. No, but I did it. Well, yeah, but you did it with a frown on your face and you screamed the whole time. Yeah, but I did it. In one sense, yes, they did it. In other sense, they didn't understand it. They didn't really get the intent. They may have held to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, not what God is really intending, not what he's saying here. That we're supposed to respond to these commands, not as drudgery, not as as this chore, not of this weight that's so heavy on our backs, but ultimately when we look at this the right way, we respond to these commands that Jesus lays out as really a a gift, ultimately, out of love from God because he cares about us so much because he wants us to be with him and he wants to be with us. They weren't given for us to prove ourselves. God's not looking for actors in a play. He doesn't want you to just go through your life and just observe these rules and say, well, I'm doing it. I guess that's what God wanted. That's not not what he's looking for here. He's looking for open hearts. He's looking for faith. He's looking for a relationship with his people. Our life isn't a show. It's not a performance. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were all about. That's why Jesus calls them out here. That's why he says that our righteousness must exceed that, is they were all about just the performance. They were all about the outward diligence. But inwardly, their hearts were rotten. Their hearts were were not broken. Their hearts were what the Bible would call stone. Because they weren't living by faith. They were simply trying to keep these rules. And here's how we can understand this best. Another teaching that Jesus gives in the law is about the Sabbath, and this will maybe make sense and and hone this in. And here's what he said, and it's so important that we understand this so that we can rightly understand what it means to live this out as followers of Jesus. 
Here's what he says, ultimately. is that the Sabbath is for us, we're not for the Sabbath. This is important. The Sabbath is for us that we are not for the Sabbath. These teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were living as if they were serving the Sabbath. That they were going to please God by keeping every letter of the law, every rule of the Sabbath. That it would be all about their performance, their justification. That, that it would be all about how they would do things, how they would observe, how they would look, that they would be a good Jewish person. And what Jesus is saying is, nope, the Sabbath is good. Hold on to that. Don't, don't do away with that. But the problem is you're obeying it wrongly. The Sabbath is not for me, meaning God. The Sabbath is for you, for your good. It's ultimately what the law is. It's not for God. God doesn't, God doesn't need the law in and of himself. He's perfect. But the law is for us, and it's not for our harm. It's for our good. The reason why the law can seem so crushing to our spirit, why we tend to push back on it, oftentimes in the name of grace, which we talked about the last couple weeks as well. It's very easy for us to pull out our grace card. So I don't need to look at the law. I'm not going to think about the law. I'm not going to think about these commands. I'm covered in grace. I can do whatever I want now. I've got a grace card on me. Anybody speaks into our life, points out sin, we pull out our grace card. Just like a yellow card. There's Sounders game today. That's why I'm holding up a grace card. Um, But we pull that out and we show it to people. If we ever feel too convicted by the Holy Spirit, and we ever actually have to examine our lives, and we've got an area in our life that we know isn't in line with God's will, we pull out our grace card and say, nope, I'm covered in grace. I don't need to look at that. That's not what God intends at all. Are you covered in grace if you're a child of God? Absolutely. Does that mean that we should diminish the law of God? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we should live wildly and do whatever we want? Absolutely not. Why? Because God has given you a new identity and a new purpose, and it's not just to do whatever you want. It's to live under his lordship according to his will by obedience through faith. That's what Jesus is getting at here time and time and time again. That this is not bad, but that the law is good. And what happens, why we tend to push back is because we get this distorted view and we fail to understand one incredibly important truth. This is going to press on our pride a little bit, but this is so important. That God does not need anything from us. He doesn't need your performance. What he wants from you and for you is your faith. He wants your trust. He wants your heart. He doesn't want just a bunch of rule followers, void of a relationship. Faith leads us to that obedience. Not legalism, not moralism, not gaining applause, not getting an A, not getting a gold star in life, not putting on a show, not having a ton of Facebook friends, not having others think that you have it all together, not developing a platform in his name, which he doesn't need or want any of those things. In fact, he warns against these things. These are not our motivations. These should not be our motivations. Again, he doesn't want actors in a play So what motivates us? What moves us? Well, it's this. It's our belief that these commands, his law, God's way, his truth, his word, which is personified in the person and work of Jesus, are not meant to harm us, but are for our good. They're for our good. That's our motivation. That we have been covered in grace, that these are for our good. The religious leaders followed the law down to the letter, but they lacked one thing. They lacked any real faith. 
They lacked any real faith. So what does it look like to have a righteousness that exceeds these rule followers? Well, it means that we answer the question that we asked at the beginning very honestly, that question which is kind of a rough question. I don't even like the question coming out of my mouth, but am I living up to his standard? Am I living up to God's standard? It means that we answer this very honestly. In and of ourselves, all of us, all of us in this room, all of us around Green Lake, all of us in Seattle, all of us that have ever lived, in and of ourselves, the answer is no. No, we're not. We never have and we never will. But here's the good news. Is that as Jesus says these words, which could cause great fear, what they actually should elicit in us is great hope and great encouragement as his children. Because it's not about living up to the law, it's about living in the person and work of Jesus. The one who came to fulfill That's why that word is so important when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, you need to fulfill the law. When he says that I'm going to accomplish, he says, I'm going to accomplish, not you're going to accomplish, not you're going to do these things and then be made righteous. That's what's so beautiful about this passage, and the only way that we can rightly understand it is he says, I've come to fulfill the law. On your behalf, I've come to fulfill the law. On your behalf, I'm going to accomplish this work. So we could either misinterpret this and we could run with our heads down, scared to death, or we can find great hope, but it also requires great humility in living in the person and work of Jesus. Because if we're trying to measure up to God's standards, which we struggle to do, I know I do it, I still want to perform, I still want to work for my righteousness, all of that, we're going to be disappointed time and time and time again. And that's even what the law helps us see. It helps us see our need to live in Jesus. It helps us see our need to live in the one who actually could and did fulfill the law. That by faith we trust in Christ. That by faith we press into Christ. That by faith we believe that Christ lived this perfect life we couldn't live. That by faith we believe that Jesus willingly went to the cross, that by faith we believe that he is God's son who was given down from his throne, that came and lived this perfect life, and it was a worthy sacrifice. There was a worthy fulfillment. We believe by faith that when Jesus bled and he breathed his last and he said, it is finished, that's what he's pointing to. That's what he's pointing to. He knew at this time his life was going to be given up. His life was going to be ransomed for many. That many are you and I so that we can stop working, so that we can stop being fearful, so that we can stop cowering, so that we can stop trying to find our identity in all kinds of other things, so that we can stop allowing culture to dictate who and how we live, so that we can stop walking through life wondering if God's going to strike us down because that's not the reality. Instead, we can place our faith in Christ who bled, who died, who was resurrected because said this is a good sacrifice and now we can live in him. We don't have to live up to a standard we could never attain. We get to live in Christ who's the perfect standard of righteousness. And that's great news for us so that we don't have to live in fear but instead we can live in faith, taking up his life of our own because he is this fulfillment. Because all of Scripture since the fall is pointing to Jesus. That's what it means that Christ was the fulfillment. That everything is pointing to what he's going to do and what he's done. 
This is why the Beatitudes are true for us, that we are blessed in so many different ways, and this is why we can live out this purpose of being salt and light. Although imperfectly, we can still strive toward that because of obedience and the faith that we have in Christ. Not because of our ability to keep the law that we simply can't do and we simply won't do, but that when we fail time and time again, even when we strive, even when we strive to follow it, that even when we fail, Christ's payment is just as good and his grace is just as sweet. That's the good news that we find. And so for some today where you are, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus and maybe today is the day that instead of fearing him in the sense of being scared of him, you would allow him to be your Lord, that you would surrender to him, that you would realize you're not just made up of skin and bones, you're not just physical, but you're also spiritual, that God's given you a soul, that he's given you an eternal soul, and that you've fallen short, but Christ is the perfect fulfillment, and so you can find life in him, that you would give him all your sin, which you already took to the cross, and you would receive his grace by faith, so you could live a life of obedience according to his purpose for you. For some of us, maybe we've misunderstood or we've just misused grace, and we've misplaced the call to obedience and the holiness, and as children of God, we need to repent of that. Sorry for misusing the grace, Jesus, that you gave your life for. I'm sorry for diminishing your, your plans for my life. I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for not living in uh, the way that you want me to live, God. I'm sorry for just doing my own thing that we would have an honest conversation with God and that we would allow him to work on our hearts. For others, maybe we've bought into the lie that although we aren't worth God's love, that he would never accept us or that first we need to clean up, be obedient, and then faith follows when the truth is God is asking you to place your faith in the finished and fulfilled work of Jesus. No strings attached, a free gift of faith. For some, we just need to be reminded that it's not about our abilities that it's about what Jesus has already done and that we can and should rest in the good news that he offers and a life of obedience out of this reality. And for all Christians, if you're a believer this morning, we respond in humility with great hope, knowing that the law can no longer crush us because Jesus has already been crushed for us and perfectly fulfilled every command on our behalf. And what better way to even think about this and reflect on this than through communion? What we respond to every week? Jesus' body that was broken through the the bread and his blood that was shed through juice or the wine. This perfect picture of what Jesus has done in fulfilling this law by giving his life for us. That we don't need to come to the communion table with heads down in fear, but we can come in adoration, knowing that what we could not uphold, what we could not do, Jesus has done on our behalf. You see, that's the great news. That's why as we go through the rest of these commands and the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, we don't have to do so in fear, but we can do so with great hope, knowing that even as we fail, that God's grace is still good. But that's what it means to be a disciple is that by faith we're trusting in God to uphold our relationship with him. By faith we're living a life that God has called us to live, not a life on our own, 
or we're living a life of faith that results in obedience in the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to others, ultimately out of love. So I want to invite our communion servers to come. And as we take communion, I want to invite Michael to come as well. As we take communion this morning, think about, as you come or as you prepare to come, think about what Jesus has done on your behalf. Think about maybe those areas in your life, however it relates to you. Is there an area that you need to, you just need to repent of? You just need to hand over this morning. Is there a tendency to try to continue to work for your righteousness or to continue to work to please God? Maybe you need to hand that over this morning and realize that, that His grace truly is enough, that we can live in Him instead of trying to live up to whatever standard we've set for ourselves. Maybe this morning, before you come and take communion, maybe you need to have a talk with, with the pastor about what a relationship with Jesus looks like. We would invite you to come ahead and come forward. But for our church, as you come to take communion this morning, would you come with great hope in knowing that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law? And in Christ, we've been given a new identity, a new purpose, because ultimately in Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, we've been given new life. And what good news that is.